So um, I'm going to be talking about photography and particularly the photography of animals um, in and around Miles City and some, some photographs actually here in Billings. So um, I had the distinct pleasure of working with Lori Morrow and Molly Krugenberg of the Historical Society a couple of years, well, actually now many years ago, to acquire part of the archive of Miles City frontier photographer Robert Morrison, who is right there. The photos that you'll see here are a part of the Morrison collection at the Historical Society or are part of my own personal holdings. From the moment that I saw Morrison's work, I was captivated. He works in a very whimsical and um, quirky way, um, to, be, to be frank. Um, and I've been working with this archive for a number of years as part of my graduate work at MSU. So one subset of photos from the archive that interested me from the beginning were these animal photographs. Since the Morrison archive is quite large, nearly 4,000 images, some frankly not very impressive, <laughs> and many that are super interesting and impressive, um, these, these animal photographs just varied widely um, from one photograph to another. It made me wonder, would it be possible to look at subsets of photographs and detect recurrent themes, patterns, or parse out larger cultural shifts? Of course, historians are interested in change over time. So looking at the distinct ways that Morrison photographed these animals over time, I was interested in what sort of themes might present themselves and how these might change over time. I was also interested in how Morrison's animal photographs might inform our understanding around this very dynamic period, 1880 to 1920. So I separated out all of the photos with animals and tried to arrange them chronologically as best as I could. When Morrison arrived into Miles City in the late 1870s, it was a dusty outpost at the confluence of the Yellowstone and Tongue Rivers, a watering hole for soldiers, stationed at the newly established Fort Keogh. The land around Milestown was teeming with buffalo, the northern herd, and wild game. Like many others, Morrison arrived to hunt buffalo and to carve out a place of his home in this newly accessible territory. Soon, with the arrival of the railroad and swarms of new settlers, animal populations that at first seemed so exotic and so abundant were dying off or endangered. Animal photography, in particular Morrison's photography, reflects that very real shift in the ways that people were thinking about animals and nature during this dynamic period. So in trying to make sense of Morrison's animal photographs, I uncovered five primary photographic tendencies. Each tendency roughly corresponds to a distinct phase of Western settlement. In the earliest animal photos, the animal photographs appear as dioramas. Here, Morrison carefully stages a scene in his studio and places a dead stuffed animal within it, or in this case, two. These photographs follow directly from earlier pictorial processes and are a result of photographic necessity. Remember, photographers during this period were limited by slow camera speeds, finicky processing, and unwieldy equipment. 
photographing wild or live animals outdoors was virtually impossible. So here Morrison brings these dead animals inside and creates this stage. These pictorial processes, as I said before, around the American West were not new. And early photographs of animals reflected ways of representing animals that, like John J. Audubon, um, had, had portrayed them. As many have noted, the impulse to document and catalog Western plants, animals, people, and places reflect, reflected a desire to control, colonialize, and nationalize these newly accessible Western territories. Notice that the mountain lions in this picture are the same taxidermy cats as in the last one, just rearranged in a different position. Like other cultural illusionists during the Victorian era, Morrison delighted in cataloging the odd and the unusual. Two-headed calves appeared in P.T. Barnum's American Museum and throughout the nation in dime museums displaying the odd, abnormal, and the curious. By the time Morrison started photographing in the 1880s, Photography had become the latest means to display natural wonders, animals, and people that did not neatly fit into taxonomic norms. And the public loved it. This photograph of a two-headed calf functions to both catalog the abnormal and to entertain by sensationalizing and exoticizing nature. So these Victorians thrilled in this playful deception, illusion, and mystery. And I would argue that this odd composition of a floating head, it's very bizarre, is the photographic and Western equivalent of P.T. Barnum's Fiji Mermaid. Do you all know the Fiji Mermaid? I'm not exactly sure what Morrison intended with this photograph, but I think we can all agree that it's certainly strange. Is it real? Is it alive? Why is this cow's head seemingly floating in space? Okay, so the second impulse in the archives animal photographs reflects a desire by individuals, and when I say individuals, I mean men, to demonstrate a sort of dominion over Western lands and nature. In these photographs, men personalize their claims to the West as they appear alongside animals usually dead animals, in a kind of ceremonial pose. These pictures celebrate masculine conquest of animals and reflect a broader impulse and desire to conquer and control Western lands and the animals that inhabited them. They're photo trophies. Notice here in this photograph there are four main elements. We've got open land, we have a younger Robert Morrison, the photographer, with a gun in hand. He's crouching next to these dead animals that he's presumably just shot. The relationship between the elements in the photo is quite clear. Man with gun has complete control of the land and nature. We see the same tendencies in this photograph. Here Morrison, the hunter, takes his rightful share of the bounty of the West. I'm using the word bounty again, Tim. 
The message, the West is a place of natural abundance with endless resources where animals are there for the taking, but only by the right kind of man. In these next two shots, we see Morrison bringing live and very Western animals into a studio. This is quite different than what we saw before when he was cataloging um, animals and shooting those taxidermy animals. The theme here is about control. Wild animals tamed into submission by men, or in this case a boy, actually Morrison's young son, are part of this tendency to view animals as something to be controlled or tamed. Although they might look different than the hunting photos, they're inspired by the same impulse, one of control and dominion. And here again, we see the same sort of thing, bringing this wild, this I think it's a grizzly bear. Can anyone identify that? Um, anyway, a very large bear into um, his studio. Um, here we have the most exotic and ferocious of Western creatures. Um, and I wondered for a while if this bear was maybe a taxidermy specimen or if it was real. But upon closer look at the photograph, the bear's face is actually moving. You can see the blurred movement of the bear. Um, and there's a muzzle on the ground to the, on the left bottom um, of the photograph. Plus, I read in a Mile City um, newspaper articles from the era referencing um, a man in town that had a pet bear. So I assume that's who this is. All right, our third tendency, memorializing nature. The winter of 1887 was known as the Great Die-Up. The one winter when 500,000 cattle in the Dakotas and Montana died from extreme cold and hunger. Suddenly that West that Morrison had documented earlier with its plentiful abundance of animals ripe for the taking seemed distant. Meanwhile, bison populations too had been decimated through overhunting. Morrison's animal photographs take on a new urgency and reflect the realization that the West's animal populations were fragile and were disappearing. Here we have a similar shot. Dead animals, bones, and curiously enough, Morrison's dog, apparently having been ordered to play dead. He's actually moving just a little bit right, right here. He always took his dog with him on, on these photo shoots. Um, Remember during this period and into the 1890s, we see swarms of new settlers arriving into eastern Montana, native populations being forcibly removed and buffalo herds decimated. Photographers began to be drawn to the vanishing, photographing native people, animals, and earlier ways of life that were beginning to seem so distant from this present. Starting in the 1890s, there's a national movement to stop shooting animals with guns and to capture them photographically instead. This brings us to number four, conservation and camera hunting. So, um, Photo theorist Susan Sontag explains the shift quite succinctly. When we are afraid to shoot, when we are afraid we shoot, but when we are nostalgic, we take pictures. There's a growing movement to view animals not as something to be controlled, but instead in something to protect. 
instead of pictures with men with guns shooting animals or lording over their recent kill, uh, we now start to see pictures of animals alone and without men or any reference to man in the photographs. This marks the beginning of this fourth phase that I discovered in the Morrison Archive, conservation and camera hunting. This new way of photographing animals reflects an interesting shift. As animal populations were dying off, naturalists became advocates for, for conservation. George Bird Grinnell and even the great hunter, Teddy Roosevelt, asked that people put down the gun and pick up the camera. These new conservationists reasoned that camera hunting required all of the skills of real hunting, yet it protected vulnerable animal populations. New photo technologies, faster film speeds, telephoto lenses, and more stable chemical processes made camera hunting possible. Remember, those earlier, slower technologies required animals to be dead or very still. Now, the photographer could go out into the wild and capture um, photographs of animals there. And I love this quote um, by Theodore Roosevelt. And you think of Teddy as being such a, a killing machine, right? <laughs> A true democracy really alive to its opportunities will insist upon such game preservation. For it is to the interest of our people as a whole. Let us hope that the camera will supplant the rifle. Animals began to appear, as I said before, quite differently and by themselves. They're no longer accompanied by men and appear alone on the cardstock. These photographs look like the kind you might see today in a National Geographic magazine. Animals photographed as if they were unaware of the photographer's presence and where the photographer had carefully erased any evidence of himself or of human activity. Beginning in the 1890s, Americans began to equate wilderness with new spiritual powers. Nature, they believed, was embedded with powers of reinvention and rejuvenation. Humans, they reasoned, were a destructive force and as such could not be part of this pure nature. Notice this picture. Morrison captures the elk as if they're unaware of his presence. In order to, to get this photo of the elk in such close proximity, he needed all of the skills of gun hunting plus nimble camera management. Importantly, the power of seeing and the success of a camera hunt depended on the photographer's ability not to be seen. Power dynamics between the hunter and the hunted were rearranged, where a photographic blind became the technology that reinforced power differentials between humans and animals. Patience, stealth, Dexterity with the camera. Ah, oh no! What happened? So let's see if we can get back here. Um, power dynamics between the hunter and hunted were rearranged where a photographic line became the technology that reinforced these power differentials between humans and animals. Patience, stealth, and dexterity with the camera and technological skill made capturing a picture like this quite a feat. 
And look at them. What an amazing herd, right? This must have been a very difficult um, shot to capture. Um, so I'm not exactly sure what kind of a blind. I don't have pictures of photographic blinds or um, that would give me an idea of how Morrison did it. But um, I think it's a, an amazing shot. Hunting and photographic magazines encouraged camera hunters to stalk prey with bait or to use these blinds. They recommended tripods, telephoto lenses, shutter release cables, all new technologies. A 1901 article from the San Francisco Chronicle noted that, quote, the hunt with the camera is an uplifting occupation, educating to a new reverence for the humblest of created things and free from the brutalizing influences of sport, which had killing at its end. Photographing animals, in other words, was a noble endeavor, while killing them was now objectionable. Others suggested that camera hunting made humans more sympathetic to animals and to their unique stories. And women wrote that hunting with the camera was a pursuit enabled them to enjoy the pleasures of the outdoors. Bessie Morgan of San Francisco in 1897 gushed. With a camera hunting game in the wildest parts of the country, a woman becomes a new being. She learns many new things about animals that were sealed books to her before. And this is kind of one of the odd ways that Morrison, you know, he experiments a lot with printing and, and positioning, you know, his negatives in different ways. Which brings us to the final photographic impulse, number five, editorializing with animals. French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss suggested that animals were good to think with, and I believe that's true. Thinking with animals means considering how they are used or represented and what we can learn from them. In these last two photos, I believe Morrison encourages us, the viewer, to think with animals and to look towards animals for, for their symbolic value. In this photograph, the buffalo find themselves contained inside of a fence. And if you look carefully, there's a man standing here on top of the fence, and a train is going by with steam coming out of it, right? Um, there's this uneasy tension in this photograph, right? The animals are no longer in their natural habitat. Um, there's, and they're taken out of their own customary environment, where they seem to be losing the battle against the march of progress and civilization. And here, here's our last photo. In this photo, it was taken around 1905, we have another strange shot, right? What do you make of this? When I first saw this, it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around it. In fact, years to take my, wrap my head around it. Where frozen coyote corpses are lined up unnaturally on a sidewalk. And I imagine that they were taken for bounty, thrown in a truck, froze, and then Morrison positioned them on, on this building's sidewalk. 
Again, we see animals removed from their natural habitat and placed onto a human one. During the 1870s and 1880s, eastern Montana, with its authentic western characters and great animals, offered a cultural space that served as the imagined antithesis to modern life. Yet by 1890, and certainly by the time that this photograph was taken, there was a new order with powerful railroad companies, large corporate ranching and mining interest, banks, and the civilizing power of the federal government. Old timers like Morrison were keenly aware of the titanic changes that had happened, taken place over the previous 20 years. In this photo, there's a tension between these animal bodies and their unnatural placement on the city street, a place where they do not belong. Yet there's also a tension between outside and inside. Let's see if I can... Let's see, hang on. This is not working the way I practiced earlier. <laughs> All right. Um, Okay, so there's this, also this tension between outside and inside. If you look carefully at this photograph, you see, can you all see this man staring back at us from outside of the window? That's Judge Alex Frazier. He's a Scotsman who had come to, to build the Billings area as a, a, shrimp, a sheep rancher, um, had, having gone previously to Argentina and then found himself working as a... Um, Justice of the Peace for 17 years. So Frazier's looking out at, at, at us from outside of his office. You might also know down below where it says fire insurance here, you can barely see it, but there's a man peering at us right there, right between those two coyote carcasses. Um, and um, so apparently, you know, I guess he he's, works as a fire insurance salesman there. Um, outside, on the street, we see, the, of course, the coyotes and this group of restless-looking young men, likely wage laborers, standing beside the coyotes. Well, I don't know exactly what Morrison had in mind with this photograph. He seems to be making a statement about who is outside and who is inside. Are these young men, like the coyotes, similarly the casualties of a new economic order in eastern Montana? Are they casualties of the New West? Just 20 years earlier, young men like these arrived to conquer and control land and wild animals. It was a place where photographers like Morrison cataloged and nationalized animals, a place where men posed over animals as if to show their conquest and dominion over them and new lands. Now we see something quite different, and only 20 years later. Now these men find themselves outside in the cold, standing in front of the first national bank building, that's here in Billings, alongside these dead coyotes both caught in some sort of unnatural, frozen state of paralysis. Meanwhile, the West's new power brokers, the judge, the insurance salesman, are inside their offices in the bank and look out at us. So in, hello? 
So in the end, I was able to make more sense out of this wide variety of photographs in the Morrison archives by pulling out the animal photographs and trying to place them into some sort of historical time frame. I was better able to understand the archive and to draw conclusions around why Morrison chose to photograph animals in so many different ways. Photographs really do reflect larger cultural shifts. And I learned a lot about how to read an archive, and how, especially one so large. So I wanted to end by just saying thank you to the staff of the Montana Historical Society who've been so helpful in this, and to my wonderful graduate committee, um, several of whom are here today, and to um, my colleagues at MSU who are also here. So thank you.